0: Hello and welcome to New Narrative's Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast on Singaporean politics and current affairs. Political Agenda is brought to you by New Narrative, a Southeast Asian platform for journalism, research, art and community organisation. I'm your host, PJ Thumb, but enough about me today. Today, we have a fantastic podcast for you. And with me, as always, is our wonderful, wonderful editor-in-chief, my co-host, Kirsten Hahn who this very morning we found out uh, received an honorable mention by the World Justice Project for her extraordinary reporting on the rule on rule of law issues in Singapore as part of the Anthony Lewis Prize for exceptional rule of law journalism. Hooray! Yay! Yay! Congratulations Kirsten Thank how do you, you. feel?
1: Um, I didn't think that I would get it. I I didn't even know that they gave out honourable mentions. Everybody keeps asking me if I get a trophy now, but I don't think I do. <laughs> but it's very nice anyway. Uh,
0: do you know, uh, Are they? S- did they uh, specifically cite any articles that you wrote or is it just for no, your body of work no, over they just the past sent year?
1: Me, they just sent me a letter saying I got an honourable mention, but they didn't tell me. <laughs> What, what articles specifically right. they were looking at. Yeah. So
0: if our audience wants to read more of your work over the past year, can they go to your website or something?
1: Yeah, I have a portfolio that's just on com, and then there's a portfolio of the work that I've done that's been published.
0: Fantastic. Great. Okay, so with us today are two uh, experts on the field of uh, migrant workers in Singapore. Uh, to my right, uh, Dr. Steph Chok who is Advocacy and Communications Manager with the Humanitarian Organization for Migration Economics, or HOME. And she has a PhD from Murdoch University. Uh, her PhD thesis actually was on the migrant construction workers in Singapore who built the Marina Bay Sands. And uh, she's volunteered for HOME since 2008 and actually spends a year as the case manager at their shelter. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yes. that's right. Welcome, Steph. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are you feeling today?
2: Well, good, good. Revived after this cup of tea.
0: (laughs) Magic tea. And uh, also with us today is Debbie Fordyce, who is the coordinator for the Cuff Road Project, which um, is a meal program in Little India, which has been running for more than 10 years and recently celebrated a million meals served. And she's also on the Executive Committee of Transient Workers Count 2 or TWC2. Welcome Debbie.
3: Thank you very much. How are you today? I'm fine and I'm honoured to be here.
0: (laughs) No, the honour is all ours. So today we're talking about migrant workers and I think the first question that we need to ask right to set the context is who are we talking about? Who are migrant workers? So Debbie, would you like to start first?
3: Okay. Um, I think we need to make clear that when we talk about foreign workers, we're not talking about the foreign professionals. We're talking about the low-wage workers, those with work permit holders. And what distinguishes them from other foreigners that people um, might notice um, is that they have no minimum salary. They're usually relegated to jobs that Singaporeans would not want to do because they're 3D jobs, Sturdy, Dangerous, Demeaning, and there are almost a million people in this category, so I deal mostly with um, male migrant workers, specifically those people who've made a claim for work injury compensation or salary non-payment or some other kind of claim or complaint, and I think Steffi will talk more about the female workers.
2: Yeah, so um, we don't just have male uh migrant workers in Singapore, we also have a large number of migrant domestic workers. I think Singapore has, I think, the second largest concentration of documented migrant domestic workers in Asia, so we have about almost 250,000 domestic workers, approximately one in five, some people say one in three um, households in Singapore hire migrant domestic workers, so we're highly dependent on them for care work. Um, we also have migrant workers in a wide range of sectors, from construction to manufacturing to the service sectors. Um, yeah, so like Debbie said, they are all in stigmatized
3: professions in Singapore. Yeah.
0: So it sounds like this is a very diverse community then.
3: Um, it's a diverse community, certainly in terms of nationality, and that's something that we wish that we were able to get more figures on. We don't actually know how many people there are from each, and each nationality. Among the male workers, we see mostly Bangladeshi, Indian, Chinese. And um, as far as TWC, 2 we don't, we don't deal with Malaysian work permit holders. And that's largely because if they have some problem with their work, they have, it's easy for them to go home. And it's easy for them, easier for them to negotiate the terms of their, of their job. The lowest paid workers are Bangladeshis, and so the majority of the people we deal with at TWC2 are the Bangladeshi male workers. They are about um, over 80% of the men that we deal with. We
2: also have source country restrictions in Singapore under the work permit regime. So unlike for employment pass or S pass holders, um, the state doesn't determine what job you can work in based on your nationality. But if you're a work permit holder, the state will determine if you are from this country, then you can only work in this occupation. So that's why for domestic work, we only have women from Philippines, Indonesia, um, Myanmar or India because that's... Uh, those are the countries that are so-called approved source countries for construction, um, South Asia and China. Yeah, But for the service sector, for example, um, Bangladeshis are not supposed to work in the service sector unless the cleaning company has a town council contract, then they can hire Bangladeshi men. Otherwise, they're not allowed to work in service sectors or in manufacturing. But we don't have figures because the state doesn't release figures, disaggregated data on how many workers from which country are actually in Singapore.
3: I think that generally Singaporeans are largely unaware of the kinds of restrictions that apply to work permit holders and the nature of their jobs and the nature of the problems that they face in these jobs.
0: Let's talk about some of these problems. What what are sort of the, you know, there's this I think broad understanding that there's some exploitation going on, but I think for most people it's just this vague idea that People are being exploited. What, what, what is the problem, really?
3: Right. Where does that exploitation come from? Um, I think that a lot of it starts with the recruitment. And so recruitment for, for Bangladeshi workers, for instance, could cost them for their first job up to fif- between $15,000 and $20,000 for a job with an average salary of 500 a month. That's Singapore dollars. That's Singapore dollars, yeah. And so this is not something that's extracted by a legal employment agent in Singapore. But I think it, it has a lot to do with the lack of employment um, opportunities in Bangladesh. So they're desperate to go abroad. So with those kinds of recruitment fees, um, exploitation is much easier. Once you're indebted to that extent, either to, to banks, to moneylenders, to friends and family, by the sale or lease of your family's land, or by sale of family's jewelry. Once that happens, you're in a position where you will continue to work no matter what the conditions.
0: Just the back of the envelope, it fifteen to twenty thousand. So, a worker has to work for basically three years just to make back the recruitment fee.
3: It sounds like it doesn't make sense and people say, can't they just do the math? Can't they do that back of the envelope in calculation? But it's often because when they're told, when they first meet the recruiter, they're told, well, you have to pay this amount of money first for the training, which might cost $10,000, the same training that if they did in Singapore would cost one to $2,000. So they're told they have to pay $10,000 for the training and then a few more thousand to take the exam to get the training certificate and then more to arrange the passport and then more to speed things up so that they don't have to remain at the training center. And then they're promised a salary which might be twice that. They, they're they promised you'll be able to get a thousand dollars a month and they think that sounds fine. It won't take that long to get back this money. It should be done within a year. Then they find that they're actually going to be given only $500, and not, perhaps not the overtime opportunities that they expected, and there may be deductions that they hadn't expected, and they may have to pay kickbacks to the employer for things that they hadn't expected, kickbacks for the, um, for the extension of the work permit, or kickbacks just to get that overtime. So there are a lot of unexpected things that go on there, and so just about everyone we find who's making a salary claim has not anticipated these kinds of things has not anticipated the amount of money he has to pay to get here or the amount of money that is going to be deducted from his salary
0: you no know, <laughs> two weeks ago we had a uh, this this on this podcast we were talking to Singaporean hawkers who told us about ridiculous contract terms that they were getting and um, you know and it seemed to me like that was the height of exploitation but this is way beyond that and and all of this is is legal?
3: No, no, of course oh. not. <laughs> okay. Of course not.
2: <laughs> well, well, some things are and some things aren't. So kickbacks are illegal and it's an offence. The problem, though, is that there's very little evidence. Um, I mean, usually when somebody extracts an illegal payment, they're not going to give you a receipt, right, or leave a paper trail. So even though it's an offence, uh, very few workers would be able to have the evidence, even if they wanted to make a claim and often they don't want to make a claim because it means risk risking their jobs. So um, well that so that's illegal but then there are things that are not legal so paying somebody a dollar an hour is not illegal in Singapore because we don't have a minimum wage.
0: Right.
1: And hasn't home seen cases of workers who are shown an in-principle agreement that they would be paid a certain amount of money and then they show up in Singapore and they're given another in-principle agreement, which is like half or a third of that amount of money. How, how often does that happen, that you know, the, the contracts are substituted or the in-principle agreement, which some workers don't realise is not legally binding,
2: gets basically changed? So uh, contract substitution and deceptive recruitment and also wage manipulation or manipulation of documents is something that we see quite regularly. So it would be like the situation you describe, where they are promised one amount um, in their country of origin and then another amount surfaces when they are here. Sometimes the salary rates are revised after they arrive, which is also legal if you get the worker's consent after the worker arrives. And if they're already heavily indebted, it's not difficult to extract that consent from a
3: worker. Let's call that an in-principle approval. So that's Uh the the name for it. And Steffi, because you've worked with more Chinese workers, you've probably seen contracts. And working with Bangladeshi workers, we rarely see a contract. So all the man often has to show how much he expects to get is his in-principle approval. And as she says, that could be, they may be shown one paper before they leave their country and then another paper as soon as they get here, or they may just be given a salary slip that has an amount that's very different and perhaps it's been adjusted. So it does have to have the man's consent, but we, do, we have seen quite a number of cases where um, the employer has notified the MOM that, they've re- that they're adjusting the salary downwards. Another thing about wage theft that we hear quite often from the men that come to us is being forced to sign salary slips when they start work or before they start work. They might be given um, 12 monthly salary slips that just have nothing written on them at all and they're asked to sign these 12 slips. So if they're not paid or if they're underpaid, if and when they do decide to make a, a complaint about that, the employer has all the evidence he needs to show that he has been paid his wages.
0: What about working conditions? We hear a lot about injuries to the workers. Is is that a major issue?
3: I think it is. <laughs> I think it is, but that's partly because most of the men I see are injured. It, it does have a lot to do with working conditions. And I think that, for instance, um, you know, back injuries are very common, and a lot of these men are being asked to carry things that are beyond the legal limit. I think it's 25 kg that they should be, that, that should be the limit of what they carry. And we do hear quite often of people who have to lift and carry things that are far beyond that limit. So there's that, and there's substandard um, PPE, personal protective equipment, or equipment that, you know, is, is, is broken or is, is not effective and there's no way of replacing it. So that, that certainly does happen too.
0: Steph, what about uh, you know domestic workers?
2: Yeah, so at our shelter, we've housed about over eight hundred women um, in a year. Oh. So the top, the top problem reported is overwork, so excessive hours of work. So domestic workers are not covered under Employment Act, so there are no regulations on working hours. So we see women who at our shelter complain about working seventeen to eighteen hours a day, um, sometimes every day. So um, complaints also uh, of overwork and also emotional abuse. So verbal abuse is another top complaint, as well as um, illegal deployment and um, inadequate food, which is something that really surprised me when I started working at the shelter that in Singapore, where there's so much food wastage and where we are celebrated for being a culinary capital that, um, that we saw so many domestic workers regularly complaining of inadequate food. Of course, there are also salary complaints, and then um, physical and sexual abuse and harassment. Um, But also things like being denied rest days um, and having their communication devices confiscated or severely restricted. So it's really a combination of all these things, right, that keeps them really isolated and vulnerable.
0: New Narrative published an article a while back on uh, Indonesia's first uh, female suicide bomber. And one of the things that struck me was that she didn't get radicalized in Indonesia. She got radicalized while she was a migrant worker, first in Singapore and then in Taiwan, because of the fundamentally the dehumanizing effect of her employment. Right? She was denied um, you know, time off, denied the ability to meet her friends. She ended up spending all her time alone and online, and that's where she then uh, got in touch with the, the group which radicalised her and so you know this I, I I it sounds that like we are damaging people's mental health uh, through what they are experiencing either as a construction worker or a domestic worker or as, as a low wage migrant worker in Singapore
1: and I believe Home has done research on the mental health of domestic workers and found like the first year is the most vulnerable because of the indebtedness so they they're homesick and there's culture shock um, but they can't go home because they owe so much money so domestic workers it's slightly different from the male migrant workers because then domestic workers they basically get what is called a loan and then they spend the first almost the best part of the first year paying back the loan so i've interviewed domestic workers who say that like, you know their first seven to nine months in Singapore, they've worked with no rest days but actually didn't get any salary because they owe this loan, which is actually like their agent fee sort of situation. And so on those day, in that seven to nine months, she doesn't get to go out. She doesn't meet friends because she has literally no money. Um, And sometimes no phone because the employer confiscates the phone. And I've also met domestic workers who... We're very stressed, and when you talk to them, it's it sounds like what they're getting is culture shock. Because, like in the one case where we went back to her village in Indonesia and she lives in like very rural Surabaya you go to her house and it's got dirt flooring and there's one light bulb in the whole house and suddenly she was in Singapore and everything had buttons and microwaves had buttons and there were washing machines and she didn't really speak much English and when she told her employer that I don't want to do this anymore I want to go home the employer was like but I paid the levy and I paid this loan thing for you you can't go now what will happen to me so in in it became a situation where both she and the employer were stressed about different things because both of them had put money into this and it was a situation that actually wasn't working for either one.
2: Yeah, so the loan repayment system is very problematic, like you said, because for six to eight months, uh, because employers pay this upfront fee to the agency and then deduct it off the domestic worker's salary. So during that period of time, they often impose additional restrictions because they're very concerned that that the fee they paid up front is not going to be recovered through the labor of the domestic worker. So they might um, impose no rest days during that period. They might um, confiscate her mobile phone or restrict um, her communication with others. So that kind of further isolates the domestic worker at a period where she's still trying to familiarize herself with being in a new country and working for this family with their specific um, demands. And we have had Several cases where domestic workers want to leave, and the employer will say, "No, I paid X amount of money for you," and this is very commodifying kind of language
3: used. Right? I paid for you, you as know. if as if they belong to that employer. Yes. Yeah,
2: and I think if you think about how recently um, MOM had to um, find an agency for selling domestic workers on carousel, did you read about that in the papers? So that's like a manifestation of of how we commodify. Um, migrant workers and domestic workers. Um,
1: yeah. And you see it a lot when you go to like Katong shopping complex and things like, oh, you know, if you don't like her, you can bring her back, as if you're trading in a fridge or something. Yeah. So, or, or like free celebrity replacements, endorsement. Right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So uh, they would say free replacements or a certain number of replacements. And then if you go to the agency, they would say, oh, do you want a fresh mate? You no, know, meaning someone who's just like, for the first time. Yeah.
0: Why? Why is the system? structured this way instead of you know a a normal system of employment contracts like the rest of us have what, what, do you know the history of this and how it evolved to become in this really exploitative and
3: dehumanizing sort
0: of system
3: i feel that with uh, the bangladeshi workers and their recruitment fees it's because of this extreme desperation to to go abroad to work it's a lack of a lack of job opportunities at home so a lot, of, a lot of these men come from fairly well-to-do families, landowning families, and families where the man is not expected to do manual work. So he's been brought up in such a way that he would expect to do something that's, you know, an, an office-type job. So they might be equipped to do that, but those jobs are simply not available. And because of the demand for these overseas jobs, which pay Foreign currency and do you know should pay money or promise to pay money? There has uh, there has been created this layer upon layer of middlemen who are extracting money from the worker to go abroad, and so this is not of Singapore's devising. So Singapore has tried to do something about that by saying that everyone should go through a legal employment agency. But the men that we see don't go through legal employment agencies. Most of the money they spend is spent before they arrive here. Now, some of it we do know goes to the company here, and the company is probably thinking, if everyone else is taking a cut, I should get my cut too. But I suppose the authorities here, they are somewhat aware of this, the amounts that are extracted from the men before they come. But it may, I mean, it, the result of it is it works out to Singapore's advantage to have people who are so indebted that they will continue to work long hours at very low pay. So this is not something that was devised by, by Singapore, but I think that the result of that has been that a lot of that corruption from their country has filtered into Singapore. And so we hear people talk about having to pay directly to their Singapore bosses here, or to their Bangladeshi supervisors. So with that kind of corruption, it, it finds its way into Singapore. And I think that the construction and the marine industries here have um, have developed this, this system of corruption, of exploiting the workers by asking them to pay and also expecting them to work exceedingly long hours for, for very low wages.
0: Right. I, it just doesn't, as a historian, right, doesn't make sense to me because um we had an oversupply of labor in the 60s and 70s um and we had a strong trade union movement um and part of the reason you know why uh the historically we regard the People's Action Party as such a success and Lee Kuan Yew as such a success was that he was they were able to address these you know the this this major problem of an oversupply of labor and um, you know, and do so while still respecting labour rights. Uh, so how did we get from that to our current situation? Somewhere along the line, something must have happened. Or it was a gradual corruption of the system. Do you know anything it's, about it's, this?
3: It's a really good point. And I mean, the little that I know about it is because I've been here very long. I first came to Singapore in 1975. Oh, wow. Okay. And there was... It was nothing like you see now, and I'm older than you, so, yeah, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> I remember those days when Singaporeans were doing these jobs, Singaporeans and Malaysians, and I had Anglo friends who were also working in construction to make, you know, to, to, to make money, and I was working with Vietnamese refugees in the 80s, and I knew Vietnamese refugees who would illegally go onto construction sites and make money while they were waiting for you know, their uh, next move. Um, But that was long before Singapore started to look the way it looks now. So the tall buildings that you see, very few of them existed in the 70s. So there was this mad rush to build. And so construction with with roads and underpasses, overpasses, tall buildings, MRT, all of these things really started up in the 80s. And it was from the early 80s that we started to see this huge number of, of migrant workers come in as domestic workers and as construction and marine workers. So Singapore was a very different place in the 50s and 60s. So I think that that's probably also coupled with the this intensive growth, the kind that you see in the Middle East as well, and possibly also with the destruction of traditional agricultural um, ways of living in the sending countries. So if we look at who the migrant workers are now, we're seeing a big gap, a, a difference between say the South Asians and the Chinese the Chinese because they do have better job opportunities at home and for the same work in Singapore they will command maybe two or three times as much as the Bangladeshi workers make the Indians might make as much as twice as much as the Bangladeshis for the same jobs so it if you look at the what their country is facing that has to do a lot with the desperation to go abroad and I think it's it's extremely damaging for some of these sending countries, countries as well that rely so much on migration abroad as a way of dealing with the problems of unemployment at home and dealing with agricultural decline.
1: For the domestic workers, it was um, coming up. So I, I did this research project with AWARE in 2015 where we looked at different aspects of women's issues and women's movement in Singapore. And for the domestic workers, what we found was they introduced this foreign domestic workers law in 1978 because there was this kind of labor shortage and they saw that Singaporean women who were getting better levels of education and you know had more, more and more skills and wanted to do more and more. So they wanted to get the Singaporean women into work but because there was also this mindset that the woman's job is to take care of the home. So then it just became, okay, then we outsource that women's work to foreign women. So we bring in the foreign domestic workers so that Singaporean women can go to work. And that was, so that was their policy shift, which, you know, from just the way I look at, I see it, it's like it, it hasn't changed from that. We've just built more and more and more. So it's it seems very much like foreign Domestic workers in Singapore are the crutch for childcare, elder care, and all sorts of care work.
3: And it's also more economic, m- more economical than having the wife stay home to do yes. all those jobs because she's making more than that outside of the home. Yeah, and she doesn't want to do those jobs.
2: Yes. So this this structural dependence on domestic workers, living domestic workers for care work is. And is anticipated to increase so the white paper that the government released um, they predicted that the population of migrant domestic workers will increase to 300,000 by 2030
0: so I'm assuming it's also primarily a very it, it's an elite if, I mean that's a word which has been thrown about a lot but uh, people of higher socioeconomic backgrounds who have uh, domestic workers
2: I so so when i um, started doing uh, casework at the domestic worker help shelter i was always very interested in looking at the addresses of the employers <laughs> and i realized that really it stretched from you know uh, hdbs in all estates to somewhere in district 10 11 so really it's across demographics you know so you had A family with eight people living in a HDB flat to an elderly, to a a family on Sentosa Cove. It it really ranges wide. So that's also why I really think we need to do something about our care infrastructure. Because the situation is that all families are pressured to seek um, help for care work and rely on domestic workers. And for families who are in that kind of lower middle-income range, this is also, I think, the most financially feasible option for them. And they might then choose to hire a domestic worker from Myanmar because the salary is a bit lower, and expect a lot more work from her because of that. And the family may also feel resentful at having very little alternatives to this option. So it's it's really not a win-win for anybody in that situation, except perhaps... um, the state in deferring the responsibility for caring for its, its citizens and transferring that burden onto individual individual families. And then it gets transferred onto a migrant domestic worker.
0: And you mentioned the state shifting the burden, which for me is always one of the big ironies of Singapore that we have a state which is so overregulated and invasive, you know, and, and the state interferes with so many different aspects of our lives. Yes. And then says, oh, you know, you, you, we don't want to create a crutch mentality. You must take care of yourselves. But with all this regulation, we don't really have a choice. We're constantly burdened with the, to, to meet all the demands that the state imposes on us. I, so, I think, yeah.
2: I, I think it also aligns with this certain um, view that as Asians, we want to also care for our family, kind of dives, yeah. in with that kind of, that, yeah. And like, um, what's that term that you use now? Uh, age, aging in? Aging in place. Uh, aging in place, right? Like that, and it's not completely untrue as well, which is why it's effective, right? There are a lot of elderly persons who do prefer not to be in a nursing home, but wish to be living in the house and still need that kind of care. And there are a lot of families who um, would prefer to look after their children in the home, right? So there's kind of this alignment which I think fits in with that. But then I think um, we do need to consider if that really is the case, then how do we provide um, that kind of working conditions? If we really want to depend on uh, someone else to do our care work, it must be recognized as work you know, it must be recognized as a profession, we need to put in place uh, certain structures and protections, and maybe it doesn't have to be a live-in requirement, if that's causing a lot of the problems that we are seeing, you know, and at the same time, there may be um, persons who do prefer to have other options that work in other countries, like more childcare centres, more elderly care centres or more day centres that are better run. So maybe part of the problem also is the stigmatisation of nursing homes. Perhaps also based on empirical evidence that they tend to be a a place that's not run properly or doesn't provide a certain quality of care. So these are also things that we need to address. It's a parallel issue, it's not a separate problem. Yeah, and I think some of these issues kind of
1: they kind of uh, intertwine. So, for example, previously, one of the reasons a government official, I think to Human Rights Watch or someone, they said um, the foreign domestic workers are not regulated under the Employment Act because then you have to, like... that Then there's limits on overtime hours, work hours. And they say, oh, how can you regulate that if they never leave the workplace? How would you ever know? So, like, actually... From this government official's Point of view The live-in requirement Actually makes it impossible To regulate So let's just not put them In the Employment Act And regulate Because if they never Leave the workplace You never know If they are doing overtime So it's too hard Let's not do it
0: And this is the same government Which has laws Allowing you know, Their officers To enter Any household If they suspect That you've got Mosquitoes breeding malaria If you've been watching A political film You know <laughs> I mean That <laughs> the um the cognitive dissonance a lot of the time, right of the government just it it it's really frustrating. and it feels like um very often it's it's ideologically driven rather than having a clear line about what you know, a clear idea um of what they want to achieve, or a clear vision of you know uh, or or at least a clear standard.
1: But I think this double standard exists when it comes to migrant workers, uh, among a huge majority of Singaporeans sometimes who talk about, who I see online talking about migrant workers' issues, because things that would be absolutely unacceptable to themselves or their colleagues suddenly seem extremely reasonable to them when you're talking about a migrant worker. So I've seen like employer Facebook groups, which are really eye-opening if you get into an employer Facebook group about the things they say about the domestic workers Um, are not outright abusive, but the mindset that you see is shocking. So I've seen like employer Facebook groups where they would actually go to an agency to like, interview two workers. Then they will take both workers' photos and post it in the group and say, which one should I get? And then people will comment below, like, oh, the one on the left looks dodgy, the one on the right looks prettier and more honest. And, and they talk like it's some sort of like, commodity, you know, like, which car should I buy? What looks better to you? Um, or they'll say things like, you know, uh, or they feel like they're kind to allow their domestic worker two hours on her phone a day. Or, you know, I should take her passport, I should not let her go out and have these friends. And they say all these things um, that if you replace the word domestic worker with, like, my assistant manager at work, it would clearly be ridiculous. You know, the, the amount of time that, like, migrant workers groups like TWC2 and HOME have had to fight to say something like, migrant workers need a weekly day off. It's astounding to me that it took that long to even fight for that and get it from the government. Because if you replaced migrant worker with any other sort of worker, it becomes immediately apparent that they should have a weekly day off. Like, why are we even talking about this? But when it comes to migrant workers, it's up for debate. You know, should migrant workers have a weekly day off? Maybe they don't need it. Or Singaporeans who go, oh, if they have a weekly day off, who's going to look after my kids on Sunday? When it's like, it's it's your yes, yes. <laughs> you know? um Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, kids so are kids. Heaven forbid yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like, Home recently had finally had success that the government said employers should not be able to keep the domestic workers' money. Safe keep Safe keys. That's the euphemism <laughs> they use. And this is just like, it's ludicrous, right? Like, if if my mum's boss said i'm going to safe keep your salary for a year this would not be a, it, it would be immediately <laughs>
3: apparent to singaporeans that this is not acceptable it's an, another side to that is I've often thought whenever I read things that are put out by the um, SPCA about how you should treat your, your dog or your cat, and it talks about making sure that the animal is able to exhibit its natural behaviors and eat food that's good for it and have have a good supply of water and get exercise and have so much room to move around in. I feel like if you substituted um, foreign worker, whether domestic worker or, or male, you know, construction worker, that people would say, no, no, why should we allow that? So there, there's a lot more leeway given, I think, for even pets than, than often for oh foreign workers. Okay, so the question
0: is, I mean, we've talked a bit about the sort of government regulation side, but why, why does society, uh, you know, accept these attitudes? Why, why do they seem so widespread?
2: Well, one, one more policy I think it's important to discuss would be the security bond. So that's also a unique feature of our work permit system. Every employer of a migrant worker has to furnish a $5,000 security bond to the government. And if you breach conditions of the work permit, you are uh, a part of that bond is liable to be forfeited. So quite commonly, employers will impose additional control measures because, and justify it as, uh, because they are concerned that this $5,000 would be lost. So not giving rest days or withholding the passport, which is very common, like 9 out of 10 of the migrant workers we see do not hold on to their passports, holding on to their other documents, restricting their communications. All this is justified as, I'm responsible for her, I'm the one who had to furnish this $5,000 bond and I'm the one liable to lose it if anything happens to her.
3: Okay. Well, Yeah, I think there are, that's a very important thing about the security bond, and it's something that the, the MOM takes very seriously. When we see workers who are no longer working and their work, their work permit has been canceled, um, their special pass, which allows them to remain in Singapore but doesn't permit them to work, shows the security bond expiry date. And when it gets close to that expiry date, often there's pressure put on the man himself to make sure that his employer extends that security bond because he's required to remain in Singapore, say, for his work injury compensation or for his salary claim, the resolution of that. But he's not allowed to remain in Singapore if his security bond expires and is not renewed. So they won't allow him to complete his claim if the employer doesn't do that. So if the employer, for instance, has gone bankrupt or something, um, he might not be able to, to remain in Singapore. And he gets pressured for that.
0: Wow, so there's pressure on both ends to maintain a system that breeds an attitude of exploitation.
3: Well, I think in this case, it's to make sure that the state is not responsible <laughs> for doing anything for that migrant worker. So we, occasionally we see people who have overstayed, They've overstayed their work permit or they've overstayed a visit pass, and then, if long enough, they will be jailed and caned, and then they're released on special pass while there's an investigation going on. Now, these people have no security bond to fall back on, so who's supposed to fund their ticket home? They're pressured by ICA to do that. So they're told, you are not permitted to work, but you have to provide a ticket that's open-ended for, that's open for, good for one year, so that when we're, we've completed this police investigation, that we're able to fly you home. So it's really just to make sure that the state doesn't have to pick up any of the funds for, um, for repatriating the worker.
0: What about the rest of us, though? Um, You know, we've been talking about employers and uh, workers, but the rest of us, I don't have a domestic worker, you know, uh, and so I'm not part of this um, exploitative arrangement, um, and you know I feel very strongly that it's exploitation. But you know we, we talked about at most what estimates go from one in three. So a majority of Singaporeans don't have a domestic worker. Why, why do they accept um, th- this this current situation?
3: Yeah, Steffi will talk about the the domestic workers, but I think for the male workers, yeah, they're it, they're very much otherized. So the fact that we don't get to see them, we don't, they're not they're not competing with Singaporeans for for jobs. They're not allowed to live wherever they want. There's very little social interaction between Singapore residents and the and the the foreign workers, and so it is easy to put them put them in a different category, and the fact that. Uh, where can you see a lot of um, of migrant male workers? Is say in Little India on a Sunday when they have a day off, you see huge numbers of people. And I think that a lot of Singaporeans are reluctant to go those areas because they see all these brown men, and they assume that these men are responsible for for crime and filth, and you know they'll 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 rob you, attack you, rape you, things like that. Yeah, so
1: you've seen MPs refer to them as like walking time bombs or ticking time bombs or yeah, something.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, so, I often give tours in those areas on Sunday nights to force people to go and, and take a look and see what these people are doing and what it's like and why they're there and, you know, how they, how they gather and how they socialize and that sort of thing. Uh,
0: live living domestic workers, are they... It, it sounds like there's a different kind of segregation going on, less a physical one and more of a... sort Social? of Social? Yeah, Maybe. social, mental, spiritual.
2: Yeah, so, so if you think about, say, some regulations in condominiums where they stipulate that domestic worker um, is not allowed to use the shared facilities, not allowed to use the swimming pool. So there's already this separation of uh, the domestic worker as not part of, uh, not a resident, not, not recognised as a full resident that is entitled to use of shared space. You know, and I think there was a time when there was a sign at a club right, that said that domestic workers were not allowed in a particular dining room. And even in, within homes, there will be some uh, homes where domestic workers will have a special space that they wouldn't eat at the dining table with the family, for example. Right? So these are small gestures that then signify to the rest of the persons in the home, including the children, that the domestic worker is, is different. Right. Um, it sets in place a certain hierarchy that then gets replicated or is either replicated or is a reflection of, I think, larger attitudes in society, right? I mean, and you, you can see that and it's very much accepted behavior. If you go to a certain party, for example, where there are lots of domestic workers, you would see that segregation, right? The, the, the family members and all will be sitting here and all the domestic workers would be somewhere else you know they it's it's okay for them to eat separate food you know uh, there'll be families that will stipulate that they can only um they cannot use the washing machine for example they have to hand wash their own clothes they cannot mix the clothes together or if you buy your own food you cannot put it in my fridge you can only put it in a certain separate uh, part of the uh, this particular space of the cupboard um i remember uh, when i was at at the shelter, the first domestic worker I interviewed was one where the employer said, you're not allowed to bring any of your clothes into my home because you, your things are dirty. So she made her throw all her clothes away and then bought her three sets of clothing, three large t-shirts and three ill-fitting kind of berms, right? So um, I'm not saying all employers are like that, but there's generally a treatment of them as kind of separate, different entities. And that's how that kind of social um segregation And um, you sometimes see
1: in. that with like Singaporean families eating in restaurants and the domestic worker is feeding the children but she's not eating with the family at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of see that and it's quite common but people don't seem it doesn't seem to strike people as unacceptable
2: or odd as much as it should. So so I see that right. dehumanization also reflected in very binary representations so they are either sort of threatening and therefore should be are treated with suspicion or um, they are kind of revert as martyrs or very sacrificial figures or then as very pit- pitiable kind of victims you know so they're not kind of recognized as kind of fully fleshed out complex humans like the rest of us have have the freedom and agency to be.
0: Right, and I suppose either of those narratives then leads to you know a sort of chain of uh reasoning where because of you know one or the other therefore they, they uh that's why they end up in jobs where they're exploited and therefore they they deserve to be exploited or oh, overdoing a kindness by exploiting them so it kind of either explanation rationalizes the exploitation
2: in, in some senses i i, I because I've spoken to a lot of employers um, while working at the shelter, and a lot of employers don't see their actions. I mean, except for those that maybe are are guilty of like um, severe physical abuse. But when there's no physical abuse, what I find uh, really I really grapple with is the fact that a lot of them do not even acknowledge that what they're doing is exploitative. So for example, a domestic worker who works long hours has to massage the employer maybe three times a week. Um, and is not allowed to use her mobile phone, right? Real example. She ran away and then the employer called and said, why is she there? You know, your shelter is for women who are abused. I did not abuse her. You have no right to house her. You are just giving an outlet for people who want to breach their contracts to stay there. So there's no recognition that this is exploitative and I think that is part of the problem that we don't even recognize certain types of Um, actions as exploitative because it's so normalized and non-stigmatized in our society.
1: I think there's also like a mindset where people say oh they chose to come so yes the conditions are hard but they chose to do it and so they should you know like accept that this is what they signed up for and then there doesn't seem to be a sense that even if people did voluntarily get on a plane, and voluntarily come to Singapore, that there are many other ways to coerce a person to do something. Like, we we shouldn't see coercion as, oh, they were beaten until they agreed, or they were confined and locked up and chained to a radiator until they agreed. You know, there's so many different ways that coercion happens. But I've seen so many people say, like, oh, they... they they're so desperate in Bangladesh, that's why they came to Singapore. So it's still better in Singapore than Bangladesh, and they voluntarily came. So, you know, they should have known that they would be working 18 hours you know, on a construction site.
2: I don't accept that, yeah. that rationalisation. We, we need to also be responsible as a country of destination, as a host country that is so dependent on their labor, structurally we are so dependent on them in every single industry, in every single sector in Singapore. We like to benchmark ourselves internationally to countries that are doing so much better in other areas. Why is it when it comes to labor standards, we aim so low and we, f- we consider it acceptable that we are in constant breach of international labor standards for such a large um, community mm-hmm. of workers. These work
1: permit people—they're almost—they're almost like what one fifth of our population. Yeah, it's uh, what, almost, almost a one million. million of them mm-hmm. in a country that has five and a half million people.
0: It's like who's saying you—you you, you know, both of you, right? If you just substitute Singaporean for the foreign worker and then put it through the whole same set of uh, circumstances, no Singaporean would stand for it.
3: Not not at all. Yeah. absolutely not. Um, we were visited before by people who study labor trafficking, and I asked this one man from Harvard, "Would you consider this label Would you consider any of these men to be trafficked?" And he said, "Absolutely." So, we we try not to talk too much about that. You know, we try to look at it in terms of what the existing legislation is and what can be done within the le- the, the legislation or how we can change that legislation and improve it. But if we were to say that we felt that all these people had been trafficked, um, we wouldn't get anywhere with it. But there are some people who would consider it to be that way.
0: I've heard it called modern-day slavery, you know, because it's... it's we. You know, there's this idea of slavery as um, Africans taken from Africa, sent to the US or Europe in chains and then whipped. But the fact is, the most... Of the people we considered slaves were actually on indentured uh sort of um debt bondage right in men, in which is the same situation we've just been talking about where people are you know um, coerced or or seduced into an idea that you could uh make a better life. but first, you have to get into debt before you go off, and then you end up having to pay off that debt. And uh, the, the terms on which you're paying it off uh, and you know, often legal contracts are so onerous and there's so many penalties and punishments that somehow you end up never you know, taking years, decades to pay it off. And when we think about that historically, we condemn it, but it's happening right here in front of us and we don't and we're, it's, somehow, it's become invisible to us
3: with one significant difference, that these people will not be allowed to remain in Singapore. So what happens to them, whether or not they can work off that debt, it won't become one of Singapore's problems. So as as I like to point out all the time, Singapore is, as you say, very well organized, very well controlled. Um, It's also, a lot of things are are heavily subsidized. So education, medicine, and um, and housing? And housing, yeah. Very heavily subsidized. And these are things that don't apply to this one-fifth of the population in Singapore. So they can't access that. Of course they can't access the housing. But medical is something that affects a lot of the male workers quite a lot because of the injuries at the workplace. And so they're charged several times more than what would be charged a Singaporean for the same thing. Um, just two days ago, I was at the at the hospital talking to a doctor and he said, I would have treated a Singaporean differently for this operation because I know that the Singaporean would be able to remain longer in hospital. And this was an operation that TWC2 had paid for and so he knew that it was donated funds for this operation. He said, I did it much less aggressively than I would have done for a Singaporean because a Singaporean could have remained in hospital longer could have had access to longer physiotherapy as a result of, you know, as a result of this. But he knew that this man would have to go back to Bangladesh at some time in the near future. And, of course, he paid much more.
2: Yeah, medical subsidies were withdrawn for foreigners some
3: years back. So previously, they were subsidized patients, but I not think anymore. think until about 2007 or eight, And that made a big difference. It also happened at the same time that they increased the... Insurance policy for workplace injuries, but they increased it from thirty thousand to thirty six thousand, and yet the subsidies removing that subsidies meant that their cost is going to be go up by at least three times.
2: And insurance um, policies often don't cover diagnostic procedures, which are very expensive, like the MRIs and the CT scans. So what we have also seen is when a domestic worker. Um, manifest certain symptoms which requires diagnosis, that's when they get repatriated. Because those are costs that are expensive but not covered by insurance. And also, what if you do the diagnosis and something is discovered, what then? Does the employer then want to kind of pay for a really expensive treatment for someone who has cancer? You know, some other terminal illness. So at that point, you know, um, it's more expedient the employer would just choose to repatriate the domestic worker instead. I mean,
1: that's one thing I've, I've been thinking about a lot, that the impact of our policies and the way we treat migrant workers here don't end in Singapore. So, you know, a lot of, definitely as a journalist when I look at the stories, I'm always often very dissatisfied because as Singaporean journalists, our stories about these migrant workers tend to end at repatriation. So we're like, oh, and then this person resolved their claim, and then they got this money, and then they were sent back. But you know, I've, I've spent time at the Cuff Road Project. I've, I've looked, talked to workers in the shelter. And quite a lot of these workers make it very clear to me that when they go home, it's just a start of a whole new cycle of problems. So some workers from the Cuff Road Project go home with injuries that would not uh, feasibly not allow them to work again. So, you know, people who have lost fingers, who have, you know, um, lost mobility in an arm or something they're not going to work again when they go home, but if they were the main breadwinner we we basically brought them here, worked them to the bone, and then sent them back as kind of you know almost like you know their bodies are broken we've broken their bodies in Singapore, and then we send them back where they can't work anymore. So what does that family do now when we send them back? There are workers who have told me that oh, when I get back to Dhaka. Um, in in Bangladesh capital, I'm not going back to my village because I haven't made back the money that I owed. And if they know that I'm back in Bangladesh, they're going to come after me for the money and I don't have it. So I'm just going to stay in Dhaka and m- I might not tell my family that I'm back because I don't want anyone to know that I'm back. Oh, there's even a worker who said that because of his salary non-payment and his salary case dragged for so long, his family missed... Um, the loan repayments that they had to make and the bank took the land. So the family now has no land, so even less ways to make money. And then they missed another instalment. So there's a police case about him uh, out against him now because the bank basically reported him for not paying his loan. So he he was I interviewed him just before he was flying back and he had only recouped like a small a fraction of the money that he was owed. Uh and he said when I get back I'm probably gonna get arrested because the bank reported me and he was actually building HDB. So, you know, it wasn't like some big like private development. He was building H D B public housing that Singaporeans live in. We are gonna raise our families in there. But we are sending him back to huge problems that, you know, his family are probably gonna struggle for at least one or two generations to try to fix because now they have not only not they don't have the money that he was supposed to have made they've also lost the land so it's like when people say oh these people are so lucky to come to Singapore anyway because it was so much worse at home I often kind of just tell them but you realize how many people we send back in worse situations than when they came
3: those are not uncommon stories at Mm -hmm. all that you tell and a long time ago, I read a study that was done from NUS, ni- 2009, and it said that about 80% go back worse off than they came. And when I heard that, it was it was really Eight shocked. 80%? 80%, yeah. So I f- happened to be in, I went to the Bangladesh Highcom for some reason, and I talked to someone there, and I said, you know, I've read this, this, this study that says 80% go, I, and I asked him, how many go back better off and he said better off about 20% and I said no 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 let me rephrase the question because perhaps you didn't understand me and he had read the same thing and he accepted it that at that time at least 80% went back worse off now from my personal experience it's about 100% but (laughs) but I won't use that Um, the fact is these kinds of things this indebtedness is very hard to get over you can, we know what work is like in Singapore. We know that it's, it's 3D work. It's the kind of work that nobody would choose to do, and it's the kind of work that most of these men don't admit to their families that they're doing. They all try to glorify their position a little bit. Um, but what's developed from this is this whole system of, of middlemen who are out to scalp men before they get here and after they get here. So this is a system that's developed because of this desperation. So a lot of the money is made by the banks, by the, the money lenders, and, the, I mean, families and friends are, are loaning money, but they do that because they expect that they will make money. They've heard that money can be made abroad. And if you have one in 10 who goes back and builds a nice house, that house will stand for a long time and hundreds of people will see that house and they say that could be me he i can do every bit as well as that man can i'm not going to be unlucky and the man who loses everything like you said stays in Dhaka and hides and tries to scrape together a bit of money does whatever he can in order to avoid going home because he knows that maybe the money lenders won't go after his parents but they will go after him
1: I think, yeah, so like with the domestic worker that I went to visit in in her village, um, so she was living in a very simple kind of very plain, um, you know, wooden and some parts brick and cement house that was completely unvarnished, no paint, nothing, very, very simple. And then in her village, she would see dotted among the village houses that were painted with bright colours, or they would have those nice decorative stained glass sort of windows And we would look at the houses, so you have this plain house, and this really colorful house, and a plain house, and then down the road, there's another colorful house. And she would point at all these colorful houses, and she said, that one went to Malaysia, that one went to Singapore, that one went to Dubai. And so she saw it, and she thought, I should do that. You know, if everybody who has the nicest house here is because um, the wife went and was a domestic worker somewhere, I should do that. And... I, I heard the same when I was in Bangladesh, and I was actually in Dhaka. I was talking to um, this Bangladeshi guy who was working as a bellboy in a guesthouse. So it was he, he worked long hours, but it was not a terrible job. Like They gave him accommodation, they gave him food, he had friends in the guesthouse. It seemed to be doing quite well. And he was saying, oh, um, where do you come from? I told him that I was from Singapore, and he got really excited, and he said, I'm working in this guesthouse, and I'm going to save my money, and I'm going to come to Singapore. And I I kind of I, I tried to tell him I was like, Look, your job looks like it's hard job I know, but you seem fairly happy here. I would not work for years in this guest house to pay ten thousand dollars to come to Singapore and do construction work because I, I don't think it's worth your while and Singapore is not as good as you think it is and he's like no but a lot of my friends say it's great and I was like no no it's not as good as you think it is it's going to be really backbreaking work you might lose the money and then he just looks at me and he goes I don't think it's true I see it on the TV and it's very shiny and it's just this kind of um because friends who have done well will brag about having done well friends who have not done well will not talk about it so that there's this kind of sense that oh uh, the unlucky ones that's not very common it's not going to be me and i've also seen that with workers who have come had bad experiences gone back and come again because they're like first time unlucky maybe second time will be better because what am i staying at home for anyway and i've talked to workers who've come like three four times and lost money every single time but still like maybe the next time i'll be fine
3: you're you're a hero you can, you can save your family, you're, you're, you're a hero, you're enterprising, you're, um, you're desirable. And for those men that stay home after they finish studying, they stay home, they're seen as lazy and no good and unmarriageable, actually. So a lot of these men, you know, your, your social capital raises. Whether you make money or not by coming abroad, your social capital will rise because you've been to a wonderful place like Singapore, and you come back with a swagger and some nice clothes, and, and you look like you've been abroad. But it even affects the rest of the family as well. So often the sisters are more marriageable if the brother is working abroad and the converse is also true i knew one man who was injured at work and he said after he was injured his sister's husband started beating her and then she was torn between staying with her husband who was beating her and the son or going back to the parents where she would be another mouth to feed and it was because he was injured and had stopped sending money so the sister and brother this the brother-in-law thought this woman it's you know she's a good wife because I know that there'll always be money if I need something because of this brother who's in Singapore, so it affects the whole family in lots of ways, mm.
1: so we often talk about you know just a worker but not see. That sort of cross-border impact of migration.
3: And the other thing which affects the men and the women who go abroad. So in Bangladesh, you have a huge number of families where the same thing you can say, this man is in Saudi Arabia, that one's in Kuwait, that one's in Dubai, that one's in Malaysia and Singapore. There are families that are left without their men. So the women are there to try to hold the family together and yet are prevented from doing a lot of things because they're women. They can't go out alone. They can't do things without a male escort and a proper male escort. So it's changing the family dynamics the same way it changes when the women go abroad, then the family is without the mother, the sister, the, you know, the daughter.
1: Even when I've interviewed domestic workers who are considered good news stories, so when I've talked to them, those who have been here like 12 years, almost 16 years, and they're considered good news stories because they get along well with their employer, they have no problems, in fact they're more like friends with their employer. And so these are supposed to be the happy stories. But then they tell me things like, oh but when I go back to Indonesia, my children don't call me mum because as far as they're concerned I am not their mother because I've not been here for 12 years. You know, so she's supposed to be telling me about her great success in Singapore and how happy she is to be in Singapore. But then it comes at the cost of her children. That's why I always find it so problematic when Singaporeans tell me that migrant workers are lucky to be here. Because I'm like, you're not even thinking about what they've given up.
0: Coming back to, to Singaporean attitudes, there there is this, frankly disgusting attitude that comes from the very top that says if we don't eat other people's lunch they will eat our lunch how would you respond to someone who says that
3: i hate to think that people actually live with that thought um maybe they do but i think that with that thought it seems to then justify these kinds of things. And I, I worry in the, with the sort of treatment that many migrant workers receive or the attitudes towards migrant workers, I think that it, hardens people into this attitude that there are deserving people and less and non-deserving people that we can very easily draw a line and say I will protect and look after and care about the people on this side of the line and on that side of the line I don't care now I can understand it when we're talking about people that are on the other side of the world, people that we never have any contact with, that we don't hear about, we don't know, we never have a chance to deal with. But I hate to think that that happens in a place like Singapore where we're all, <laughs> frankly, as, as secluded as, as they are, we're all pretty close together, and they are working to build the economy. And I like to think of Singapore as the kind of place where the government can do anything it wants as strong and controlling as it is. If they had a will, I think they could do a lot to alleviate these problems. Yet I remember once I was talking to a group of university students here, and they said, yes, but if we had a minimum wage, or if we paid them more and created better conditions for these migrant workers, wouldn't that mean everything would be more expensive? Yes, it would. It would be more expensive. And things would take longer to get done, and i think that these construction projects and the you know all of the things that they're used for would definitely be more expensive and i think that that's the cost that has to be paid at some point we have to look and see what do we think of as a as a reasonable cost not how much can we get can we coerce people how little can we coerce people to work for
0: well i think also that is only true in a pure free market economy but singapore is by no means a free market economy. The government regulates us to death, right? And there are all sorts of ways already in which it manipulates our living costs, our living conditions. So, you know, I I the the principle of yes, we should be willing to pay more for human dignity, right? I'm 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 totally behind that. But it's not even, I think, really true in Singapore because of the of regulation and the ability of the government to intervene in our lives, which means that they can create, and they were going to create, we forget, in the 60s, right, a very strong welfare state that takes care of all people and makes this sort of uh, exploitation um, you know, a, 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 a legacy of, of a, a much more uncivilized
3: past. Sometimes I think I get a glimpse of what a market economy might be like in Singapore, and that's when I see men working illegally. So when men work legally, they're apt to get maybe a basic salary of $20 a day, but their employer is required to pay the levy to the government, the security bond, pay for the two insurance policies, and house and feed the worker, and make sure that they have the, they they get the project that they can put the workers to work on. But when a worker is not permitted to to work, he will probably find illegal work on his own. And then he can make several times more than that. He might be able to make two or $300 a day because his employer isn't required to pay all of those things. So is that possibly what a market economy is? If the employer weren't required to pay all of these other things, and the man could negotiate the job and he could quit that job and try another one, he would be able to make a whole lot more.
2: So, so the levy, maybe just to let your um, listeners know, the foreign worker levy um, is a tax that employers have to pay to the Singapore government every month for every construction worker, every work permit holder they hire. And in the construction industry, it ranges from about four hundred dollars to 400 to eight, uh, to, sorry, to $950 a month that is double the salary of a construction worker. So it's not always true when they say it is cheaper to hire a migrant worker if you factor in all the costs from a business perspective for the employer that has to pay that amount in full, right? It's just that a large chunk of that actually goes to the state rather than the migrant worker himself.
1: So why is it that after they've collected this levy and then, you know, there's the insurance policies and things like that, when a migrant worker is, you know, uh, has his salary withheld, or if the boss goes bankrupt, why is it so difficult for them to get money back? Because it seems like a huge amount of money has gone in. And why is it so difficult for them to get it back?
3: That money is not earmarked for the worker. So the levy just goes into the government coffers. It's used for other things. It's not meant to be used for the benefit of the migrant worker. The security bond, recently we've seen a few ca- uh, some cases where if the worker has not paid his salary and he makes a salary claim and the company is not willing to pay or has gone bankrupt, they might be able to get $2,000 from the $5,000 bond, but not more than that. So this is a payment, it's sort of a, a consolation. Even if his salary claim is $20,000, he might go home with $2,000 and it's considered a, a resolved case. But the government has to make sure that they retain the bulk of that security bond in order to make sure that that man <clears throat> eventually leaves Singapore, that the state is not having to be responsible for repatriating him.
0: So I guess the question that comes to my mind is who is profiting from this whole system? And it really sounds like what we have are uh, middlemen, uh, the companies, uh, employers, the government, but not the workers, and as far as I can tell, you know, not, not society is not benefit profiting, either.
2: Maybe maybe in terms of um, lower costs. Like if you think about all the different sectors that migrant workers work in, and how their underpayment may uh, say say for example, even in food manufacturing, right. So we saw one um, woman from China who was working in a factory that um, these shells, you know those cockles that they put in the chakwe mm. yeah.
3: tiao? Yeah.
2: And she was working such long hours um, and paid quite little for it. And then these are the food manufacturers that I guess it's because of related to the, the fact that a lot of food now is centralized, right? A lot of hawkers or, or food establishments don't do their own sort of um de-shelling and all that it's all centralized and then it's sent out right so i think it's part of how this whole system kind of artificially depresses the cost of a lot of things for ordinary singaporeans in our everyday life you know how do we um keep our economy running where we pay lower costs for a lot of things from our food to other topics? types of services, right, in our coffee shops, you know, if you look at the, the person who's serving you, that person is probably Malaysian or
3: Chinese, I mean, from, from China,
2: even in our massage parlors, you know, yeah.
3: You know, and I think another thing to consider is <clears throat> what does it do to us as a society when everyone we know is sort of a white collar worker? that we don't know personally people who are doing some of these low level jobs and in other societies you might have a neighbor who's a construction worker or a neighbor who's you know a, a dog catcher or people who do various other kinds of things and i think it it really it makes for a different kind of society if you know people at lots of different levels uh, of, of work and where people are all getting a reasonable salary. So I think that it, um, it sort of, it insulates us for from people who are working with their hands, with their muscles, with their bodies. We come to look down on that kind of thing. And I think that this is, of creating a a sort of a more wholesome society if you happen to know people who are doing lots of different things a variety of different things not only people who've had a similar form of education living in similar form of housing this isn't
0: some sort of theoretical counterfactual right we know of societies where construction workers are well respected and well paid and where the industry is efficient and things work well, and it's not as if costs are, are ridiculously high. I
1: think we also think about how like this huge, large foreign workforce with very depressed wages then also depresses Singaporean wages. Because, you know, it you can't bring in almost one million people on no minimum wage who work for very low wages, and I expect it not to have an impact on the rest of the people who are working here. So. Yeah, you're like, yes, things maybe will get more expensive if we paid migrant workers better, but perhaps they wouldn't be depressing some Singaporeans' wages so much either. you know. And I think you know, there are a lot of moving parts to this, so it's not so easy to be like, oh, we can't pay them more because if we pay them more, then I have to pay more for my noodles at lunch. you know. It's, there are so many other things that are happening.
2: Yeah, because wage levels for Singaporeans, at least for certain... Um, section of the community are also too low, right? Um, they're not earning living, wage, living wages as well.
0: So, what's, what's the solution then? I mean, what can we do? And I guess part of the question, given all that we discussed, is how do we make Singaporeans care about this issue? You know, I think it seems like there are laws in place, there are regulations in place, uh, the government has the capability of doing it, it's not you know economically unfeasible, but until there is a, a popular will this this won't change so how do we make Singaporeans care?
2: No, I'm not sure if it I would say that Singaporeans don't care uh-huh. um, I just feel that sometimes that care is is shown in in very particular ways, so we because we run a shelter, we, we have direct services, I do see that um, there's care shown in, in terms of providing welfare, you know, kind of welfareist approach. I think what's missing is, I think what Kirsten has mentioned before, is is more about um, moving towards a rights-based approach. So what's very popular I think in Singapore is, is recognition, right? Like, oh, let's have the Domestic Worker of the Year Award, or let's have some sort of um, dance competition or some way to appreciate them for their work but what I don't see so much is this kind of uh, political and popular will to move towards recognizing the rights that should be accorded to all workers right? a more rights-based approach to the issues that we have raised so it's about channeling that care um, into um, wanting this person to have the same rights that you would want yourself and the rights that we don't have as a citizen to not say well I don't have those rights or so you shouldn't but to fight for those rights that we all should have in Singapore.
1: I think because it's my sense is that it's something that we are generally not very good at in the first place we are not very good at talking about systemic issues and rights across the board not just migrant workers right like when I speak to students and I talk to them whether it's migrant workers whether it's death penalty whether it's sex workers and they're like oh so you know they are very (laughs) putting," and I'm kind of I I don't need you to feel like they are putting. I don't even think a sex worker necessarily feels that she is putting. you know she's doing a job and she wants to be treated fairly and with respect for the job that she's doing uh and so it's very, we need a lot more kind of political awareness and education to talk about rights rather than, oh, you know, it's Foreign Domestic Worker Appreciation Day, so I will buy her cake. But for the rest of the year, I will confiscate her mobile phone. And, you know, we need to break out of that.
2: Yeah, we get invited a lot to talk to schools, but I think um, we need to address the fact that a lot of the issues are depoliticized for students. So we recently had a session because we had so many um, students from JC's who were doing project work and all of them wanted to focus on the abuse of domestic workers. So first of all, we had to kind of um, tell them that it wasn't just those that were beaten up that you see in the newspapers, like that the the whole um, idea of abuse should include other exploitative practices, not just physical violence. And then secondly, I, I talked to them about all the issues that we talked about, all the systemic problems, right? And then part of the project work exercise was to come up with a solution. And then they wanted to do things like develop an app or a brochure to, 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 sh- to teach employees how to be kind, to show that they were human. And, and I was getting increasingly flustered and I kept repeating <laughs> all the things that um, we were talking about today and finally one of them said, but we can't. I said, what well, What do you mean you can't? Do you understand what I've been explaining to you? He said, yes, but our instruction was to come up with a solution, but to not challenge policy, to not criticize the government. So they are already being socialized into thinking about a problem. So, so their, their direction from the school um, is to to focus on a social problem or policy, but to address it only in a particular kind of depoliticized way. So that's very, very troubling for me because these are all students from elite junior colleges who are probably earmarked to take on certain roles within the civil service. And they are already being taught at this age and they were all very bright students who caught on to what i was saying so i was very confused initially because i thought are they confused am i not getting my message across but they understood but even though they understood they still kept going back to help me finish my assignment properly what is the solution that i can propose that does not kind of um challenge the system. system yeah and i said i can't help you I can't. The, the problem only, is the yeah. system. Yeah, so I said, I can really help you in understanding the issues that we see. That's my contribution today. And I said, please, can I speak to your teacher? <laughs> <laughs> you responded to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. But you see that with MOM as well, right? Like some of their responses are, oh, we will create pro- uh, videos that will teach migrant workers more about what they are entitled to when they come, which are important but also don't necessarily address the scenarios in which even if they know what their rights are, they can't say.
2: And so that's only the first part of the problem, right? So again, there's a lot of interest. We get a lot of inquiries. People, they want to do pre-departure trainings. They want to develop pre-departure materials. You want to uh, tell them about their rights. What we are dealing with at the grassroots level is the problems they face when trying to claim those rights, when trying to assert those rights. So a lot of disproportionate emphasis on the first part,
3: very little on the second part. And also, the, the idea that you can simply provide a solution. So this is where a lot of these students, uh, what they come with is, I have a solution to this. I'm going to provide a solution. And I'll give an example of some of the solutions that I've heard they've heard that some of these men are living in substandard housing. So why don't we take old, disused buses and convert them into dormitories for the men? There's a solution. Another one is men working in hot conditions in the hot sun. So one group said, we want to make a a temperature sensitive band that they can wear around their head. And when it turns red, then the employer will know that they're overheating and they shouldn't continue working in the sun. And I thought, why don't you think that person, the person himself, would be able to speak up to the employer and say, I think I'm about to get sick, I'm, about to, I'm suffering heat stroke. But something, a, 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 a technological solution to avoid having to open your mouth and speak to the employer. Another one was a lunchbox that will ensure, that's solar powered, so that the food will stay warm. And I said, so if 300 of these lunch boxes were delivered to the construction site, someone would have to lay them out, can't stack them up, so that each one would be able to activate the solar powered thing. And the worker would then have to take it and eat it and make sure that it's cleaned and return to the caterer, who then would fill it up again for the next day. So. There are these, it's technology, and a lot of it is apps. Apps, with the assumption that if you just tell someone about their rights, that they will be able to access those rights. The other very common solution that people have is because the narrative in Singapore is of a multiracial, multiethnic, harmonious society. So if we become multi-ethnic, multi-racial, together with migrant workers, then all their problems will be solved, because that obviously has solved all the problems for Singapore. So let's just integrate with them, and then the problems are solved. And, you know, I point out the difficulty of doing that, and how that's not the objective of the, the government, the workers, or Singapore residents, to integrate with migrant workers and who, they came here to work. We're talking about salaries. It's a matter of recruitment fees and salaries and going home, being able to provide for your family. It's not a matter of integrating. But that seems to be the all-purpose solution to everything, is multi-ethnic integration.
1: I think it was in like 2014 or something like that. Maybe it was earlier. Around then, I attended this MOM event mostly because MOM was ignoring my email so I went to an event to try to see if I could get someone in person but it was a hackathon for migrant workers uh, well not migrant workers for migrant workers issues so I got there and there were a lot of like app developers and techy people and they were like yes we are going to have a hackathon this weekend and then like if if your app is good MOM will actually like fund you to de- develop it and then we could like take it to market and things like that <laughs> it wasn't clear to me if any of the people there had ever spoken to a migrant worker about what they were going to hack so they're like it's a hackathon and I was like, but did have any of you talked about the issue that you're going to hack and so there are ideas like "Oh, we are going to make um uh, migrant workers keep losing their work permit cards so we're going to make the work permit smart and it's going to be like a qr code type thing that you can put in your phone and then mom can just scan your phone and then they will have all the information about the migrant worker
3: and that's what we have now the work, the work permit does have a so QR maybe, code, maybe so that's what it, it works. They start.
1: And and it, and so they were like, oh yeah, and then, then it will be so much easier because then MOM can like track their case and blah 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 blah. And it's kind of like, no, I, I thought we were still at the level of a Bangladeshi worker saying that his employer forges paper payslips. You know, it's like he's not getting paid electronically. He's getting paid cash that's short, and he doesn't have the paperwork or the payslip or the timesheet to prove it. And that's his problem, but they had this big thing about we're going to make an app. And
3: that's his problem, but that's not the way the government sees the problem. So they did have a problem with the work permits. If you look at your IC card, how many times have you lost it? Maybe never, maybe once, but you don't lose it. You keep it until it has to be replaced because you've you know gotten a certain age. But with their work permits, their work permits are for one year or two years, but they're being terminated so quickly that the MOM finds that they're creating this card quite quickly for migrant workers, whereas Singaporeans don't ever lose their um, ICs. So that's why they developed this QR code because the QR code, the information can be updated for the worker. So all of this information, if you download the app, you can see all this information. You have this picture, you have a lot of information. They can update it without having to change the work permit. And I don't know, because change of job is not really a, a, anything that's, that's feasible these days, but they're still looking at apps. And so one of the apps, you might have seen this, um, activate. It's an app that's supposed to help workers to change jobs, which generally is, is allowed only in, in certain exceptional cases. But Aptivate, you need the worker as well as the employer to buy into this system. And the workers are always looking for new jobs if, they're, if they find that they're given permission to, to change jobs. But there aren't very many employers who sign up to that because they would lose all those kickbacks that they would otherwise get. So the companies are so addicted to the money that they squeeze from the worker to give the job that they don't want to sign up for it. So this Activate app would work if the companies would sign up, but they don't. And so, you know, we see a lot of, a, a lot of students coming around trying to interest the workers in this new app to find a new job. But the MOM has also admitted that they haven't gotten a lot of companies to sign up for it. So so what's the solution? I think I like your question better. How can we make Singaporeans care more? I like that question better than what's the solution? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because that's maybe not beyond your pay grade, Steffi, but it's beyond (laughs) mine.
0: (laughs) I I think certain patterns are, are emerging. Last week, uh, sorry two two weeks ago the last the gender podcast and this week you know we see severe problems not just with the regulation of the industry but the how the regulations are implemented um there's a severe mismatch of incentives which you know uh, a prioritization on profitability rather than human welfare um you know there's uh these Contractual shenanigans going on, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally. Um, there's a sort of subservience to broader political ideological aims, uh, you know, which results in manipulation. So fundamentally, to sum it up, you know, there, there's a deep systemic issue, and deep systemic issues can only be addressed through deep systemic change and challenges to the status quo, which we are not permitted to do in Singapore. And that's the quandary we find ourselves in, I suppose.
2: I mean, I, I, I do recommend policy change, <laughs> legislative change. You know, I, I wouldn't say because, because we do continue to say certain things and make certain recommendations. So, um, you know, definitely, I think that we, in terms of the systemic flaws, we should do what we can to. Um, to address the imbalances of power. So the policies that exacerbate the uneven uh, bargaining powers, the blacklisting framework, the security bond, the levy, we would recommend that those be reformed and eventually removed because we can see the practical impacts um, that are disadvantages to and workers. And the lack of job mobility. Yeah, and the lack of, of labor mobility in which they're so highly dependent on employers. And of course, the something about the recruitment fees because these are it it can be addressed so it exerts a very coercive power on workers right so basically for me um, what we need to do is to find ways to empower workers because it's really not about informing them about their rights it's not really information only right it's about how do we ensure that even after they know their rights that that they are empowered enough to claim them, and how do we create an environment in which they can claim those rights without penalty, without being punished for it? And I see that as a project that doesn't only involve migrant workers. We cannot make this an exclusive project. It's a project in which we need to kind of have greater um, empowerment of workers in Singapore generally.
3: The empowerment is not left for them. It's really the... Um, putting together a system in which they can be empowered. So it's not a matter of working on them. I think that if there weren't these constraints on them, they would be very much empowered. So they know what to do and how to do it. They just know that within the Singapore context, they're not allowed to. But I was going to say another thing that we do, because I think HOME and twc too are getting... Um, a higher profile and we know that things won't change quickly but with our higher profile we have a lot more people coming to us to ask questions to do projects um, to intern with us to volunteer with us and this I think also makes a big difference so I feel sometimes that we have um, a good amount of success with our volunteers and our interns and that eventually will lead somewhere. Even though with the government we have you know very slow success or very you know, limited amount of, of contact where we feel that we're at, um, enabling change.
0: Historically, there already is a very good mechanism for empowering workers. It's called the trade union. Yes. right? And it's the most historically successful device for empowering workers, especially in such a formalized, structured economy. And the problem is, it's it's thoroughly co-opted by the government, who, you know, I think we'd agree are not uh, honest brokers in this. You know, between capital and labour, right? Between management and and workers. And so, you know, again, we come back to this this problem. You know, we we know the solution, but the current. Our little system won't let us
3: have it. Yeah. Once I was speaking to a group of um, rather young kids from an international school and these two young boys, one whose family was from Pakistan, one from India, they said, the reason I am where I am is because when my grandfather went to the U.S., both of them, their grandfathers went, it was because of um, labor unions and the minimum wage.
0: Yeah. So on that note, yeah. I think we're going to call this to a close. Um, I want to thank our guests, uh, Debbie Fordyce and Dr. Steffi Chock, for coming here and uh, speaking with us today about um, the, you know, this hugely complicated and important issue and I feel like I've learned a lot today.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here.
0: Uh, so, thank you to you, the listener, for for listening in. Uh, be sure to tune in to New Narratives Southeast Asia Dispatches next week, which is our fortnightly podcast series, which brings you news, interviews, and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And please do check out our website at newnarrative.com dot com for more stories and information about Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just fifty two US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. So, from my co-host Kirsten,
1: yeah, thank you all for listening, and, and I hope you know this has some new insight into this whole this huge, massive industry in Singapore.
0: And from myself, uh, have a good weekend. See you next time. Thank you very much.